Welcome back to the Dirt Show. The World Series is over. The election is impending. I want to talk about baseball today, the World Series. I'm a baseball fan, and I love this World Series, even though it didn't go to seven games. I always like seven games. Incredible pitching. No hitter. <laughs> Pitched by several pitches. Um, uh, you know, great clutch hitting um, by some phenomenal, phenomenal batters. I just thought the World Series was the best of baseball. CNN didn't agree. Here's what CNN said. Major League Baseball has a diversity problem, experts say. This year's World Series is proof. Now, you may wonder, what the heck are they talking about? The home run that won the game, the clutch home run, was uh, hit by a, an Afri by a black man named Alvarez. Uh, the, the starting pitcher who pitched, um, uh, I think, five uh, scoreless uh, innings uh, was uh, Valdez, uh, a man of, of color. Uh, the MVP was Pena, uh, a young man of, of color. Um, in addition to having uh, numerous black players, including the stars, the people who won the World Series, they have other forms of diversity as well. They have a Jewish player. Bregman, the third baseman, great, great third baseman. Some of the fielding plays he made in game six were and five were absolutely uh, remarkable. And then, of course, there's this Verlander. Hard to imagine a more diverse team, a more diverse World Series in any sport. Certainly much more diverse than the National Basketball Association. Um, much more diverse then then soccer the world cup is coming up um and uh, probably a little bit more diverse than 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 football which also has quite a bit of diversity but not good enough for some of the critics they pointed out that in this world series between the two teams Philadelphia and Houston there wasn't a single black American, black American. Now, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Um, I am sure several of the black players who were born in Central America are American. Uh, they live in America, some of them probably citizens, but that's not good enough for some of the folks who are demanding diversity. They want a specific number of African-Americans, that is, Black people who have no connection um, to Central America or South America. There's a little bit of bigotry involved in that. Uh, why isn't a Black player who's been living in America and who may be an American citizen not a Black American? Why is he not African-American? His heritage is... Africa, obviously, and he's an American, yet this article complains that there were no, no African-American players in the entire World Series and that only 7% of uh, players in Major League Baseball fit their qualifications as African-Americans, a much, much, much higher percentage of Major League Baseball players are black. Uh, are people of color. Um, 
I just hate this focus on color. Are they black enough? Um, Latinos vary tremendously in the color of their skin, as do African-Americans. The greatest player in baseball uh, today, who nobody denies is an African-American, Aaron Judge. Is he black enough for some players, for some critics? I don't know the answer to that. I just hate this focus on on, on superficial um, aspects uh, of, of the game. Um, the goal of a major league team is to win games. And I'm sure every team drafts the best players they possibly can. I did hear rumors when I was in Boston and the Boston Celtics were the dominant team in the NBA for many years, there were rumors that uh, the Celtics would often pick a white bench player who might not have been as good as an African-American 11th man or 10th man um, in order to pacify uh, white fans. If that's true, that was wrong. Uh, when I'm a Boston Celtics fan, I want the the best players on that bench. I want the best players on that court. If I'm a Phillies fan or an Astros fan, I don't want to see any compromises. Um, If Latino black player is better than a black player born in Detroit, I would think that the team would be pretty smart to have him on the bench or in the starting lineup. And I think the, the greatest amount of chutzpah in this CNN article was they cite my favorite player in history as proof of their point. The favorite player that they cite, of course, is, is Jackie Robinson. And they claim that Jackie Robinson makes the case for diversity. No, he makes exactly the opposite case. Jackie Robinson, I remember like it was yesterday, him coming to bat for the first time. I, we, we, a bunch of us, we were nine years old. We went to our rabbi and we persuaded the rabbi to give a blessing. Of course, the rabbi hated baseball or hated anything that wasn't you know religious. So we had to tell him that this new player on the Dodgers has a Hebrew name. His name was, instead of Jackie, it was Yaakov, which is the biblical name for Jacob. And Robinson, Ganov, Ben. Those are the three Hebrew words. Rob is Ganov, in son, Ben. So we gave him the name and the rabbi made a blessing for him. And the next day he hit two doubles. And we were, you know, very religious at that point in time. If the rabbi's blessing could produce two doubles, that's fine. To show you how much I think about Jackie Robinson and like him, this is the ring I wear. Pardon my splint. I still have a broken wrist. But this is my ring. This is a 1947 National League championship ring. The year the Brooklyn Dodgers won the pennant. They lost, of course, as usual, to the New York Yankees. This is Jackie Robinson's year, the year he came up, 1947 Brooklyn Dodgers. So that's how much I admire Jackie Robinson. But Jackie Robinson is not 
a poster person for diversity. He's a poster person for ending discrimination. Uh, when he was brought up from Montreal in 1947, obviously, baseball was an apartheid sport, Major League Baseball. There was the Negro League, which was probably slightly better than the major leagues in terms of talent. And then there was the major leagues, uh, and the major leagues were apartheid, segregated, separate but equal. They weren't equal. The Negro League took buses to work and uh, played in dingy stadiums and made uh, no salaries at all. The major leagues, by today's standards, made no salaries at all. I remember when Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale refused to pitch unless they got $100,000. Uh, today, uh, probably Aaron... Aaron Judge is going to probably get $100,000 a game, a game, if he signs that incredible contract. He didn't have a particularly good postseason, so maybe it'll come down by $10 million or so. Even if it does, um, he will make more in one game than any player in the history of the Negro Leagues ever made and most players in the history of the Major League. So, you know, we've seen a little bit of inflation in salaries, and that's that's okay because – Fans pay a lot of money, and the television networks pay a fortune to get access to these games, and they wouldn't have this money if not for the players. So the players deserve a substantial amount of money. But $100,000 a game, you know, several thousand dollars a pitch may seem a little, a little much. But getting back to Jackie Robinson, he's not the case for diversity. He's the case for ending discrimination. When he came up in 1947, there was one – player on the Brooklyn Dodgers. In fact, he was, if not their best, one of their best players. He was from the South, and his name was appropriately Dixie Walker. Dixie from the South, Dixie Walker. He was a slugger. And he went over to Ranch Ricky and with his deep Southern accent said, man, I'm not playing. I'm not playing on the same field as a, quote, Negro. That's what he what he called him, if he was polite. Uh, and, and, and at that time, Robinson was not a proven commodity. Uh, everybody knew he was good. Nobody knew how good he was. Dixie Walker was the real thing, a proven commodity. And Brian Tricky looked Dixie Walker in the eye and said, sorry, Robinson's playing. And if you don't want to play, we'll trade you. And so they traded him to a team with no Negroes on it. And Dixie Walker continued to have a, a pretty good uh, segregated uh, a career. The Robinson story is the story about ending discrimination. And I think it's fair to say discrimination has ended in, in baseball. The, the article in the uh, CNN makes a slightly different and, and more subtle point that not enough money is being invested by Major League Baseball in the pipeline to the major leagues. Um, that is in uh, Little League Baseball and minor leagues and others. And, and of course, in order to get into any big sport today, uh, going to college is an enormous advantage because players are drafted largely from college. Not, not all players, obviously, may, uh, all sports, they have different rules, but they draft kids after a couple of years of college or at a certain age out, out of high school. But to the extent that African-Americans um, are less able to afford colleges, less able to go to colleges, they are at a disadvantage in being drafted into the major leagues. And I think it's a fair point. It's a fair point to say maybe baseball doesn't have as much diversity um, in creating pipelines to the major league. It's a very different point from saying the major leagues 
is not diverse in the World Series was not uh, diverse. Um, and look at basketball. Uh, basketball, same essential pipelines, I would think. I don't think there'd be much of a difference, but the vast majority of NBA players are are African Americans. They're not only black, they're not Latino, Hispanic, they're African Americans. And among the non-black players in the NBA, many are Europeans uh, coming from countries uh, all over Europe, um, Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe. And the NBA has been an incredible success. But when you go to an NBA game, you do not, for the most part, see a lot of racial diversity. I don't hear any complaints from the people who complain about baseball about basketball. Um, and um, I don't think there should be complaints about basketball. Basketball, talent makes it. Meritocracy wins. Um, you know, hopefully the best players on the court are players uh, who, without regard to their race. Now, of course, you get issues because, after all, one of the reasons that people complain there aren't enough African-Americans in baseball is young kids need role models. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, role models based on particularity of races, but role models are a double-edged sword. Mike Tyson, who I represented many years ago, said right up front, I'm not a role model. I don't want people to be like me. I'm a role model maybe for boxing prowess, but I'm not a role model for kids. And, and of course you have Irving uh, of the Nets being anything but a role model, making horribly bigoted and anti-Semitic um, uh, producing and, and forwarding videotapes of a kind that could have come out of Joseph Goebbels or the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And he's given a kind of half-ass apology, but not not good enough. And as far as I know, he remains suspended. I think he was suspended for five games indefinitely until he comes back and, you know, meets with the Anti-Defamation League and does all that stuff. Nobody's going to affect what's in its heart, but they can influence what's in his in his mouth. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't think for when I wrote to somebody about this, they said, well, but you know, when you were growing up, you really needed a role model, Sandy Koufax. But I wrote back and I said, if Sandy Koufax had been a Sephardic Jew instead of an Ashkenazi Jew or an Ethiopian Jew, a black Jew or an Israeli uh, instead of an American, I think we probably would have identified just as much with him as a role model. The, I think the only uh, Jewish player in the NBA today is half Jewish and half from an Eastern European uh, a country, and uh, he's Israeli. And I think a lot of Jewish kids identify with him. They identified with Edelman when he was on the Patriots football team. And I, I think they identify with Bregman um, from, um, and by the way, most uh, Jewish athletes today, I think I'm right when I say most, are half Jewish. Um, they have one parent is Jewish and one parent is not. And of course, you know, Judaism makes a big deal about which parent it is. Uh, not something I completely approve of. I've always said that the definition of a half Jew is uh, two things. Either somebody whose mother was Jewish, which really makes them full Jewish, but whose mother was Jewish and who did something terrible like Madoff or anybody like that. And Jewish people say, oh, he's only half Jewish. 
or somebody whose father was Jewish, which by Jewish law doesn't make him Jewish, but he did something great like Bregman and say, oh, he's half Jewish. You know, we have figured out a way of manipulating the half Jewish to our advantage and to our benefit. Uh, in any event, the point I'm making is I, I don't think that you have to identify with every aspect of a player. I, I think if you have a s- significant number of black players, of players of color, it really shouldn't matter much whether they come from the Dominican Republic um, or or uh, from Brooklyn. Uh, you know, when I was a big Boston Red Sox fan, used to go to the games. Our favorite players were Big Poppy, um, Big Poppy, who comes from um, um, Central America. The guy with the home run who won the game for Houston is from Cuba. Uh, I just think that it, it it's a little bit too refined to start distinguishing between black players on the basis of their uh, place of, of origin. But if that's what they define as diversity, fine. But the point I really want to make is that this whole emphasis on diversity in baseball supports the point of view I've made on this show over and over again, and a point of view I've made in my writings over and over again. No one wants Diversity. Diversity is a euphemism. It's a false flag. Everybody just wants more of us. More of us. So in basketball, African-American leaders and sports experts, they want meritocracy. Diversity in basketball. Meritocracy. Whoever is the best player should play. But in baseball, we want diversity. Um, The same thing that's true in college admission. Nobody wants diversity. Have you ever heard of a college, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, going out and seeking white kids from Appalachia who come from abused families, kids who are active in the gun rights um, movement, uh, very religious evangelical Christians who don't believe that a woman has the right to terminate a pregnancy? No, that would really diversify my classes at a university, I have told you before that uh, Ted Cruz was really a diversifying influence in my class because almost everybody else was liberal and Ted was not liberal. That was real diversity. It didn't matter that Ted Cruz was Cuban by background. Um, that didn't contribute to the diversity. Um, he didn't speak as a Cuban-American. Many Cuban-Americans are conservative and for understandable reasons. They came from Castro and they're not going to be pro-left after they've what they've gone through with Castro. But my point is that you know true diversity is more than skin color. And and skin color is not even enough for some people because it has to be skin color accompanied by place of nat- national origin. So yeah, we should have better pipelines. We should try our best to get anybody. But, you know, sports has always been a route, especially since the days of Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, and, you know, Hank Aaron, uh, the great, great, the greatest ball players. Um, uh, so many of them have been black. But since, since that day, sports has been the epitome of meritocracy. You rise to the top if you're Joe Lewis and can hit harder than 
uh, the next guy, or if you're Willie Mays and can field better, or if you're Jackie Robinson and can steal better, or if you're Hank Aaron and can hit more home runs, that's the route to success, meritocracy. And I don't think diversity should become a barrier to meritocracy. What do you think? I'd love to hear your views. Let's turn to some letters now. In the last show, I talked a lot about um, Elon Musk, and I talked about um, uh, First Amendment free speech, and got lots and lots of letters. Um, again, as usual, the Rumble letters tend to be much more right-wing in the YouTube letters, um, much more much more centrist. So you can probably tell from what I'm reading, whether it's a YouTube letter or a, a Rumble letter. Mr. Dershowitz, please discuss the government censorship through private companies. Well, tonight, um, in fact, I'm debating Floyd Abrams, one of the great First Amendment lawyers, on precisely this issue on, on private censorship. And that's what's involved with, with Elon Musk, obviously. Um, if the government tells him he must censor, that violates his rights. If they tell him he can't censor, that violates his rights. Uh, you know, if if um, uh, courts were to hold that Berkeley uh, students, and there are now apparently 11 clubs that won't allow Zionist speakers to speak, if they prevent the clubs from censoring Zionist speakers, it's a state university whose First Amendment rights prevail, the rights of the speakers or the rights of the club. These are the most important and difficult issues of the 21st century. It's an issue that in the next hour or so, I look forward to debating uh, with Floyd Abrams. All right, next question. Are you sure the first name of your son is E-L-O-N, not I-L-A-N? Yeah, I'm sure. He's sitting right here with me. We named him Elon, E-L-O-N, uh, which is the Hebrew word for a strong tree. Um, I-L-A-N is a more Israeli way of spelling the name, but Elon Musk and uh, Elon Dershowitz um, share the same first name, not the same bank accounts, but the same uh, first name. Okay, Mr. Dershowitz, you're not listening to anyone's opinion anymore. Your mind is closed. A classic liberal listens to arguments and then counters. You are just an old liberal shouting, get off my lawn. Much love, old man. Little bit of ages in there. We remember the other day I wore my shirt called the the old man. I listen plenty. I change my mind. That's why I read the letters. If I didn't uh, uh, have an open mind, I wouldn't read the letters. But you know, people who have closed minds think of people who have open minds as uh, people who have closed minds because they are open to things that the people with the closed minds think are just dead wrong. Communism has no business in the United States. It's against the law here, period. No, it's not. Um, you can run as a communist. Um, you don't have to win. When I was growing up in Brooklyn, uh, the Communist Party had a member of Congress. His name is Mark Antonio, I think, or something like that. But he was an over a communist. There was the Communist Party in the United States. Gus Hall was um, ahead of it. And uh, there were other people. Uh, nobody votes communist, particularly anymore. As somebody once said, the only communists left in the United States are teaching uh, at uh, major universities. But um, communism is not against the law. It would violate the First Amendment to make any ism against the law. Uh, certainly fascism 
has never been against the law. I saw a play the other day uh, called, I think, Camp Siegfried or something, and it's set in a Nazi camp in Long Island, New York, just a few miles outside of New York, um, run by the Nazi Bund in 1938. Um, Nazis were prominent in the United States until the beginning of the Second World War. I live in a neighborhood now, um, which is just a few blocks away from what's called Yorkville, which was the home of Nazis. The Nazis filled Madison Square Garden. In the late 1930s, we're doing high level salutes and, uh, you know, yelling terrible things about Jews. That's the greatness of America. Um, you're, you have the right to express some of the worst and most dangerous and most horrible views. And that's what I've done all my life is defend the rights of Nazis, um, communists, and, um, and, and everybody else, uh, pornographers, uh, you name it. If, um, if you're claiming a First Amendment right and the government is trying to suppress you, I'm on your side. It's much more difficult if you're claiming a First Amendment right vis-a-vis a private company and they're censoring you. That's what I'm talking about tonight. We'll continue to talk about it. I wrote a, back, a book about it um, here. You know, I wrote a book about everything. So this is the case against the new censorship that deals with the new censorship. And the subtitle is Protecting Free Speech from Big Tech Progressives and Universities. Okay. All right. Here's one from Ho 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 7. Remember, we talked a lot about the sources of anti-Semitism and why that ugly phenomenon still comes out from under the rocks. Well, here's an example of some creature from under the rocks. Alan, who owns and operates all the hedge funds? I don't know. I guess the people who make the most money. Um, you're going to invest in a hedge fund, the people who make less money? Uh, but who runs all the hedge funds? We know the answer that he wants to give the Jews, the Jews. They must have gotten together one day at Mount Sinai and figured out that hedge funds were the future. And they were going to control it. And they weren't going to let anybody else in. And they were going to monopolize everything. They, the Jews. That's what idiots like this think. Okay. Who makes all the lion's share of donations to everyone in Congress? The answer to that is very simple. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Because there are limits to what you can contribute to Congress. And contributing to political campaigns is supposed to be a bad thing in America. Um, who builds the most hospitals? Uh, who contributes largely to universities? I mean, you can ask those questions uh, selectively. Or you can ask them more generally. Who raped all the child actors in Hollywood? Well, uh, lots and lots of people. I'm not going to mention some of them because some of them are... Uh, the parents of, of former president of the United States. Well, I'll name him. Okay, I'll name him. You know, Joseph Kennedy, who was infamous for the casting couch, the father of, uh, of John uh, Kennedy, the father of Bobby Kennedy, and the father of my friend Ted Kennedy. So, no, you can't ask a question like that and expect there to be uh, a uniquely uh, Jewish uh, answer. Who believes Jesus is boiling in a vat of excrement? Nobody, as far as I know, except idiots like you. Uh, we see how now we don't believe you anymore. Who's the we? Who's the we who doesn't believe me? Um, you're alone, sir. In this country, thank God, you would feel very comfortable in Nazi Germany. You'd feel very comfortable in Stalin's uh, Soviet Union. But I hope you're not particularly comfortable in the United States of America. 
where often meritocracy prevails. And if people of a particular religion disproportionately are involved as successful, that's something to praise them for, not attack them for. Professor, will you please that Netanyahu is back in power in Israel? Interesting, good question. Uh, Bibi and I have been close personal friends since the early 1970s. We met on a PBS television show called The Advocates. I think it was in 1970. It could have been a couple of years later. Bibi's 10 years younger than I am. He was a student at the time at MIT Sloan School of Business, and I was a professor at Harvard Law School. And I think the two of us, we, we don't remember exactly, but we know we met on The Advocates, and I think the two of us spoke at Israel's 25th anniversary event at MIT, which would have been 1973. But we go back a long, long, long time, more than 50 more than 50 years, and we're, we're good friends. And whenever I go to Israel, I have uh, dinner with him. I'm going to Israel soon. I'm planning to have dinner with him. He's pretty busy assembling a government. Bibi is a very strong, very brilliant, really brilliant, works until two in the morning, three in the morning, knows everything, knows everybody. Are his views the same as mine? No, they're not. Uh, they're to the right of my own views. I'm to the left of his views. I think he's going to have a very hard time assembling a government that is consistent with his own views. I mean, the last thing that Bibi Netanyahu is, is homophobic or racist. Uh, and yet there are people in his right wing who can be characterized that way. But that's true of American politics, too. There are people in the Republican Party, people in the Democratic Party who are racist and um, uh, uh, bigoted in so many other ways. So Yes, I think Bibi Netanyahu's election is going to be good for Israel's security. It's good that there is finally a prime minister who's been elected uh, rather than yet another election. But those of you who are critical of Israel having five elections in the last few years, compare it to the Palestinian Authority. Their last election was uh, 2006, and Hamas won a large majority. Uh, and the last election for president was 2005. And Abbas was elected to a four-year term. And he's still serving his four-year term from <laughs> 2005. Believe me, I much prefer more elections to no elections. See you tomorrow.